I am just so tired of the West being the culprit. We are in the business of exploiting one another. That's what human, you know, women relations are based on. It's up to Africans to redefine the relationship that they want to entertain with the world and stop expecting that the world is going to treat us with fairness. You are listening to Think African, a seasonal podcast engaging African thinkers and doers on what it means to think African. I'm your host, J.D. Ramalaba. When Ugandan human rights activist, academic turned politician Dr. Stella Nyanzi pulled up her maroon African print camisole, removed her black bra, and cupped her breasts in her hands, shaking them vigorously while shouting expletives to court officials, she shocked the world. Dr. Nyanzi was appearing in court for a bail hearing after she'd been found guilty of cyber harassment and sentenced to 18 months in jail for a poem she wrote for Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni after his birthday on the 15th of September 2018. Stella's poem was crafted in vulgarity and targeted the president's late mother, Esiteri Kokundera. Here's a snippet of Stella's poem. Please be advised that the poem uses extremely strong, descriptive, and offensive language. Please consider skipping over this part for the next 40 seconds if you want to avoid hearing it. Yoweri, they say it was your birthday yesterday. How bitterly sad a day. I wish the smelly and itchy cream-colored candida festering in Esiteri's cunt had suffocated you to death during birth. Suffocated you, just like you are suffocating us with oppression, suppression, and repression. Yoweri, they say it was your birthday yesterday. How painfully ugly a day I wish the lice-filled bush of dirty pubic hair overgrown all over Esiteri's unwashed choo-choo had strangled you at birth. Strangled you, just like the long tentacles of corruption you sowed and watered into our bleeding economy. Stella Nyanzi practices what scholars call radical rudeness, a traditional Ugandan strategy of unsettling the powerful through public insult. It is said to have been widely used during the colonial period. Here's Nyanzi in a Kenya television network interview explaining why she uses crude language before she was arrested in June 2018. Stella Nyanzi actually speaks from a position of being totally disempowered and thinking that my voice as the last weapon that's been left to me. My job was taken away, so I'm unemployed, I'm unemployable, I am poor, I am not earning an income, I will not allow them to take my voice away from me. 
A few months later, when her microphone had been muted during her court appearance, bearing her naked breasts became her last resort. But she was not the only one. Across Africa, mature women have mobilized the power of their nakedness in political protests to shame and punish male adversaries. This insurrectionary nakedness, often called genital cursing, owes its cultural potency to the religious belief that spirits residing in women's bodies can be unleashed to cause misfortune in their targets, including impotence, disease, and death. That's according to Professor of Comparative Literature at Cornell University, Naminata Diabate, who published a book on this practice in 2020 called Naked Agency. She's our guest in this bonus episode of Think African. My name is Naminata Diabate. I'm Associate Professor of Comparative Literature at Cornell University which is located in Ithaca in the United States. We came across Professor Diabate's book, Naked Agency, while conducting research for a planned interview with Stella Nyanzi. Although she'd initially agreed to speak to us, because she was campaigning for a seat in Parliament in Uganda at the time, the interview never took place. So we reached out to Professor Diabate to help us understand why well-educated, rational women like Stella Nyanzi and others would choose to undress as a form of protest. Writing this book was a work of passion, but also a work of, that grew out of frustration. And as I established in the book, genital cursing, and as some people call it, or women's gesture or strategy of stripping naked, or exposing briefly the breast or genitalia as a form of conflict management is broadly used on the continent. Reactions to that gesture or to the strategy have been predominantly categorized in two camps. The first camp typically frames the women as victims, as ignorant, and as unable to adopt modern ways of political participation. These women, according to that framework, are traditional, primitive, who cannot speak the language of modern, advanced, European strategies, such as writing to politicians, voting. So the only strategies that they have at their disposal is to strip naked. So therefore, they're ignorant, they're weak, and they're victims of their primitivism. The second interpretation is the one that frames these women as endlessly powerful, who are agents in mobilizing their traditional forms of conflict management. In Naked Agency, she draws from a number of cultural texts, from social media and film, to journalism and fiction. For the purposes of our interview, we wanted to find out the actual impact of these naked protests, why do women do them, and where does the practice come from? 
my research has demonstrated that the first recorded history of genital cursing happened in the Mali Empire in the 14th century. That is the first recorded history. I say recorded. What about the 15th century? And that happened in the context where English was not the spoken language. French wasn't even the spoken language. So what does that mean when we take the pre-colonial? What is the pre-colonial? So it is these questions that I am bringing to our attention to say that the pre-colonial doesn't even exist. I will invite most of my colleagues and students to think about our colleagues. His name is Olufemi Taiwo, and he wrote a book called How Colonialism Preempted Modernity in Africa. It was published in 2009, and he makes the argument that we need to think about the history of Africa in granular ways. We need to think about the history of Africa in terms of centuries and even decades, as opposed to that gross historicization of pre-colonial, colonial, and post-colonial. And I think it's a must read because it brings to our attention those specificities. Professor Diabate says incidents of genital cursing in the past were rare spiritual rituals meant to drive out evil spirits in the community. Since women's and men's bodies were supposed to be housing both maleficent and beneficial forces, the exposure of these bodies was supposed to be unleashing those forces. If an angry woman was to expose her bodies or her genitalia, she was then unleashing the forces housed in her body. So it's in that sense that flashing her genitalia was a form of genital cursing. And it was also a form of genital purification because if she were to curse a son who behaved in an outrageous way, she was purifying the community by getting rid of that son. So it's a form of cursing, getting rid of an outrageous son. It's cursing in a form of purification and vice versa. So it's purification in a form of cursing. So it's in that sense that we have to understand genital cursing and the spiritual. So when it comes to the collective aspect, genital cursing occurs as a religious, that means that it doesn't occur on a daily basis. When the women were to purify the community, for example, in response to a calamity, they will perform that ritual to curse the devil out. So in that sense, the genital cursing becomes a form of genital purification. So that is within a religious, spiritual context, a religious and spiritual purification practice. Since then, the concept of genital cursing has expanded to include what she calls naked agency, a way in which women from different backgrounds resist, show displeasure, and speak truth to power. 
but she also didn't want to continue to box African women simply as helpless victims of their circumstances or perfect superheroes immune to pain. I think this depends. It depends on various uh, circumstances, but also it depends on the women. It depends on the women's social and political class. It depends on their marital status. It depends on their intellectual status. And it depends on their social and economic belongings. And it depends on their cultural and ethnic affiliations. For example, for working and and impoverished women, women may not necessarily have access to, let's say, French or English, or who may not have necessarily access to locations of formal power. Self-exposure may be one of the most prominent ways of making their grievances hurt. So in that sense, it becomes probably the last resort. But for an intellectual woman, or for is, uh, a collective of highly educated women, their use of naked protest may be one of a series of strategies. It's a series of calculated strategies. We cannot have a blanket answer to determine if naked protest is a form of last resort or if it can be the last one, if it is the only one, if it is calculated, if it is, uh, let's see, one, if it is the first one, if it is the last one. So I really think it depends on various variables. The complexity involved is what makes it hard for Professor Diabate to determine if Delanyanzi's naked protests have had any positive impact on her life or the political space in Uganda. Delanyanzi's disrobing, both before the court and in, in court, has caught the attention of various people. And until we hear from her, as to what her goals were, it will be difficult for us, bystanders and stakeholders and witnesses, to determine the success or the failure of her self-exposure. I remember when she first exposed herself in front of her office. There was drama at the Makere Institute of Social Research when the truculent Dr. Stella Nyanzi found her office bolted. A detailed document published on the Institute's website on the 16th of this month, authored by the director of the Institute, Dr. Mahmoud. That somebody immediately emailed me saying, oh, you need to log in right now to YouTube and type Stella Nyanzi because she, I mean, something just got posted to YouTube right now. And immediately, because the person knew that I was writing this book, and I immediately logged in and I saw to, you know, the protest. And of course, the question was, what were her goals? It's really hard to pin it down. 
And even when she appeared in court and, you know, flashed her genitalia, it's still difficult to to pin down her goals and the success or not her of her self-exposure. But again, we all got to know about her plight, to know about mostly her struggles because of her gesture. Without that strategy, most people will not have heard of Stella Niazzi's plight, of her involvement, of her struggles, of her dreams. It's difficult for us to, to determine whether it was successful or not. Because if, if we were to focus also at the same time, if we were to focus on her nakedness, that is to undermine other strategies that she has been mobilizing over the years. Even so, Professor Diabate dedicates a large section of her book to making a clear and separate distinction between genital cursing, which has spiritual connotations, and naked protests, which are mostly about political power. We have to listen to the performer. What is the performer trying to put forward? If the performer tells us that she's mobilizing the spiritual aspect, that she's mobilizing genital cursing, then we have to take her word for it. If the protester is telling us that she's mobilizing the social power of sexuality, the social attention that sexuality can bring to her protests, we have to take her word for it. But we cannot, at a distance, decide whether this is the spiritual aspect or this is the secular aspect. It is not up to us, the witnesses, to determine which one it is. So I think that's a confusion that often gets made. And sometimes that's what we, we face. We take genital cursing and confuse that with, you know, naked protests and vice versa. Not all events on the continent can qualify as genital cursing and vice versa. But there are other historical reasons why Professor Diabate cautions against labeling African women's actions without listening or hearing their motivation and intentions. Those reasons have to do with how the incidents were first recorded and by who. I'm going to make two main points here. The first one has to do with the collection of data from the pre-colonial context. That collection was mainly conducted by white ethnographers and anthropologists. And the collection, of course, was problematic because they didn't speak, uh, most of them didn't speak the local language and they collected they didn't have access to the women's one feelings and to they didn't have access to the women's goals and investment. 
So we have to take these colonial explanatory frameworks with a grain of salt. That's one thing. The second thing has to do with uh, when we think about the pre-colonial, we think about a world that is not taken in in successive waves. The pre-colonial is a, an undifferentiated world. It doesn't have centuries. It looks like the history of Africa. the The history of Africa is, I mean, divided into three. We have the pre-colonial, the colonial, and the post-colonial. It doesn't have centuries. It doesn't have decades. When we take the history of the United States, it has decades. Even let's take the history of France. It has, you know, the 19th century. It has the 20th century. It has the 21st century. It has the 17th century. And Africa does just have the pre-colonial. What about the 17th century? Also, since the continent of Africa is not a country, there are many factors which make it difficult to pin down the effectiveness of the practice of radical rudeness or naked protests, since people in different countries will react differently based on the dominant culture. We have to take into account the secularization that most states on the continent have undergone since, quote-unquote, the end of colonial occupation. And we also have to take into account urbanization and the diversity in most African cities. Although most African cities are diverse with various uh, religious communities intermingling and coexisting, we still have remnants of, quote-unquote, indigenous ways of living and indigenous practices living amongst them. But most people will fluctuate between those indigenous ways of living, for example, believing that something called genital cursing still exists. And You also have those who believe in Christianity or those who believe in Islam thinking that, no, there is nothing called genital cursing and not believing and not believing in it. So it's really hard to say. Most people would totally dismiss a gesture of genital cursing. They would totally dismiss that, oh, they're just being crazy. And some people will say, no, they're crazy, but I, I, I have to believe in this. I don't want to get exposed to a woman who is exposing herself. So it's actually confusing to most people living in urbanized spaces. If a form, I mean, a form of genital self-exposure were to happen in, quote-unquote, a village, it may be interpreted in mostly one way. It is an expression of genital cursing, and I do not want to get exposed to it. But in the city, most Muslims may dismiss it, most Christians may dismiss it, or we may have people who are situated somewhere in between. So it's really a complex picture.
Nigeria and South Africa recorded higher numbers of naked protests in recent years than most countries on the continent. Professor Diabate says she's still trying to figure out why that is. Here are my two speculative answers. One has to do with the prevalence of media access because Nigeria and South Africa probably have media penetration that most African countries may not have. For example, in July, in Kaduna State, several women stripped naked. This was not an instant of genital flashing. This was what we called stark naked. Men in the southern part of Kaduna state went almost naked in protest against killings in the area. They took their agitation to the palace in Zango Kataf, local government area of the state. They say it's in reaction to a statement from the presidency attributing the attacks to alleged criminality by different factions in the area. The women said the president has been misinformed about the situation there. They want the paramount ruler to take their cry to the... As soon as the event happened, and these women were protesting against skirmishes by Boko Haram in their villages and the ensuing massacre, and they were protesting against the governor's inability to protect them. And as soon as the event happened, somebody took pictures and posted them to Twitter. And of course... Several Twitter accounts linked them, linked those pictures to me. And I'm sure if some, somewhere like in Burkina Faso, these events were to happen, it may not, they may not have been reported, reported as quickly as in Nigeria. So the preponderance of events, reported events in Nigeria and South Africa may have something to do with media penetration. And the second speculation is, especially in the this makes more sense in the Nigerian context. It is the long historical arc, because of all the African uh, countries that I have looked at, Nigerian ethnic groups have the most books regarding naked protests especially the 1929 Igbo uh, Women's War. So of all the events on the continent, that one has produced the most, you know, books. So probably that book, I mean, that event has inspired generations of Nigerians, women, to adopt. But again, this is speculative. Because Professor Diabatis specializes in comparative literature and linguistics, her training makes it difficult for her to cling too easily or too tightly to popular terms, labels, and ideologies such as feminism. Since the outbreak of the coronavirus, there have been global calls for women to take the reins and help manage the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. The idea being, men have failed to lead and it's time for women to take over. She's also particularly hesitant to jump on the bandwagon of people blaming colonial powers for the collapse of some African states before and after the pandemic. I am just so tired of the West being the culprit. 
you know, we are, we are in the business of exploiting one another. That's what human, you know, women relations are based on. Geopolitics has never been about charity. France is not dealing with the Ivory Coast because they love Ivorians. You know, the United States is not dealing with Kenya because of benevolence. So geopolitics has never been about charity. It's up to Africans to redefine the relationship that they want to entertain with the world and st stop expecting that the world is going to treat us with fairness. No, I think uh, this argument has been made. Instead, she encourages all of us to think beyond the confines of history when we think African and embrace the one thing we all have in common, the idea that each and every one of us has a unique contribution to make in the world for the greater good. For me to think African, it is to foreground the idea of what it is to think human dignity. How do we bring human dignity? How do we think of each person, of each individual, independently of their age, of their gender, of their sexual orientation, of their color, of their intellectual ability, of their physical ability, and to respect them for what they bring to our human community. How do we endow, endow each and every one of us with the respect that they all bring to us? How do we celebrate our individuality and the enrichment that we all bring to one another? For me, that's what it means to think African. Because often the continent has suffered a lot because of its generosity, because of its wealth. It has been welcoming, and that has opened it up to all kinds of greed, of exploitation. But the continent also has tremendous lessons and values to offer the world. So to think African is to teach both generosity but also dignity. How do you teach both dignity but also generosity? Generosity that is not being taken to be exploited. Naminata. <laughs> And this brings us to the end of the first season of Think African. We hope you've enjoyed this journey of discovery with us and remember the lesson from Professor Wangari Mathai at the beginning of this series when she said, and I quote, Nobody knows a solution to every problem. Rather than blindly following on the prescriptions of others, Africans need to think and act for themselves and learn from their mistakes. 
Learning from our mistakes means that we take from the past only what works, what is good and beneficial for all humanity. Remembering Nelson Mandela's words when he cautioned that to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but it is also to live in such a way that respects and enhances the freedoms of others. Freedom is your responsibility. While we may be free to choose, we're not free from the consequences of our choices. But we are not slaves to our choices either. We can change and make different choices based on new information about the world we are in and the one we hope to build. One of my personal favorites, Professor Emeritus of Paleoanthropology, the late Philip Tobias, once responded to a BBC News question asking him what in actual fact good had Africa done for the world. He said, Africa gave the world humanity. And that's no small thing. Not only did Africa give the world its humanity, Africa is the origin of civilization as we know it. The late Senegalese historian, anthropologist, physicist, and politician Sheikh Antediep spent his entire life documenting this fact in numerous books and articles on the subject. He said, and I quote, When we say that the ancestors of the blacks who lie in black Africa were the first to invent mathematics, astronomy, the calendar, sciences in general, arts, religion, agriculture, social organization, medicine, writing, technique, architecture, that they were the first to erect buildings out of six million tons of stone as architects and engineers, not simply as unskilled laborers, that they built the immense temple of Kanak, that forest of columns with its famed hypostyle hall, large enough to hold the Notre Dame and its towers, that they sculpted the first colossal statues. When we say that, we are merely expressing the plain truth that no one today can refute by arguments worthy of the name. End quote. Think about what this means. Until next time, Jerry Jeff, Reale Boja, Enkosi, Asante, Shukran, Obrigado, Tenki, thank you for listening. The Think African podcast was brought to you by Sound Africa in cooperation with Heinrich Ball Cape Town and African Arguments. Original soundtrack by the good people Bianca Wood and Tabo Gunutu. Original concept, cover art, and design by Neo Rahajani. Guest story editors, Brittany Kesselman and Laura Bain. Sound recording in Nigeria by Sam Olunya, Uganda, Dennis Signorjo, Kenya, Carlo Dera, Zimbabwe, Privilege, Musvanhiri, and Musa Sango in Tanzania. Sound mixing and additional original music by John Bartman. Marketing and Operations, Lebo Leach. Volunteers, Emmanuel Ramalapa, Kyle Draper, and Ndando Ndwandwe. Executive Producer, Rasmus Bits. Writing and Hosting, by J.D. Ramalapa, Sound Africa's Editor-in-Chief. Remember to like, 
rate and review this podcast so that more people like you can find it. Sound Africa is a non-profit organization, so please consider donating if you want to keep hearing more of our podcasts. Visit us at soundafrica.org to learn more. Thank <laughs> you.